You know I'm finishing up 1 John today, 11 messages from the five chapters, and I sort of hate to depart. It's been, for me, an inspirational and wonderful time studying through the book of 1 John. Next week, I'm going to preach on the theme, Love Changes People. And the following week, Love Changes the World. I hope that you will join us for these two key messages that develop the purpose and mission of our church. Loving God, loving neighbor, teaching others how to love. Centered in love as God has called us to love. So that's what I intend to do. So if you've ever wondered, well, what is up with the care effect and the theme of love at First Baptist New Orleans? That's what I want to talk about in a practical way in the next two Sundays, the 19th and the 26th. Then in September, I want you to be here for those five messages because I'm going to take the five competencies that we are seeking to pursue, goals to achieve. We worship with our lives. We gather to go to the need. We teach to transform. We disciple in motion. And we embrace the future. Maybe you've seen those in the signature of my email or around the church somewhere. And they are items that we developed as a staff and staff meeting, just thinking about the unique calling that God has placed on this congregation. And so for those five succeeding Sundays, I want to talk about these competencies, how we address them in our church and in our lives. Today, though, the surprising ending to the book of First John and the series, Love First, verse 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. This is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything... According to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we asked of him. If anyone sees his brother commit a sin that does not lead to death, he should pray and God will give him life. I refer to those whose sin does not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I am not saying that he should pray about that. All wrongdoing is sin, and there is sin that does not lead to death. Verse 18. We know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. The one who was born of God keeps him safe, and the evil one cannot harm him. We know that we are children of God 
and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. We know also that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, even in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. Well, an abrupt ending, don't you think? Dear children, keep yourself from idols, period. Signing off. The end. How many of you ever ended a letter like that? Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. I thought about it a long time and decided that it must surely be a summary of the letter that he intends for this to be a parting warning to the people of God that he's writing to. And that all that he has said in the letter must pertain to its last sentence. Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. I don't know what you're trusting in. Maybe money. I stood over $6 billion in currency this week. It was just beneath my feet. In fact, when we left the Federal Reserve Bank in Philadelphia, they gave us some money. I have it here. This package is currency, legal tender of the United States. Yes! It is shredded, all right? And no, I have not successfully pieced together a $100 bill. That would be a chore. But it is a curious thing, isn't it? That the stuff which we wait for every Friday or every payday is shredded here in this little pouch. So, what are you trusting in? There are three key themes in the book of First John that everybody identifies. Believing, that is faith. Believe in Jesus. He who has the Son has life. These things are written that you might believe. There's the theme of believing. There's certainly the theme of loving. Believe, John says. Love, John says. And he intends to address their affections and to spur them on to greater love for one another and greater love for God. A love that is modeled after Jesus as he lays down his life for us. This is love, he says. So there is believe, there is love, 
and there is obey. This is the love of God. Obey his commandments. If you say that you know him, you ought to walk as he walked. So throughout the letter, I am checking my trusting, my loving, my obeying. I'm examining my affections, my devotions, my commitments. And the last sentence pulls it all together. For if I do not listen to the first five chapters of this book, I will fall into idolatry. I will love somebody more than I love God. I will trust something more than I trust God. I will obey something else instead of God and thus be guilty of idolatry. What I want to do is work our way through this last part of the letter, seeking to understand what it means to be true and faithful and to keep ourselves from idols. Now, I said that faith is a theme in verse 14. This is the confidence we have. He has spoken about confidence before. He wants to have us to have confidence as we approach God. We've seen a lot of confidence in the Olympics. Athletes who are the finest in the world, who have prepared for months and even years for their competition. And they are confident that they can do what is required of them. You remember the movie Rocky? Hey, I was on the steps where Rocky ran up. In fact, I uh, got a picture of a couple of girls in front of those steps in Philadelphia. Remember when he ran up the steps? This is it. In fact, Anna Catherine and Rebecca ran up the steps too. Uh, I did not run up the steps. But I did get in front of the statue. There's a statue there of Rocky Balboa. Or I, I don't know if it's Sylvester Stallone or Rocky Balboa. But you remember the victory, the triumph, the passion of this man in the movie. And the way that he fought and would not quit. When I read through the book of John, I see him drawing us and challenging us to be a people who per persevere in our faith, who go through the trials and the troubles of life and keep trusting and have a confidence as we go before God that he loves us, he cares for us, and we're standing in his grace. We know if we ask according to his will that we receive what we ask for. We're to have confidence in our prayers. We're to come to the throne boldly to find help in our time of need. And John says again and again, you know, we are standing in him. We're standing in grace. 
During the plane ride, I sat beside a 41-year-old man who'd lived in Cincinnati all his life. And we got to talking. And uh, pretty soon we were talking about some spiritual things, and he told me he was not a religious man. He grew up in a church uh, when he was a little boy, but hadn't been to church in many years. And he said, you know... The only thing that's really important is that you do right. You've got to be a good person. That's what's important. I don't know how confident he was in that self-righteousness which he professed. That's what that is, by the way. If you're thinking, yeah, that, that's pretty well it, isn't it? Whoever you are, whoever you're living, just be a good person. That would be self Righteousness. What else would that be? And I began to talk to him about grace. And I said, you know, the Bible talks about grace. In fact, the Apostle Paul says we stand in grace. And he, he was thinking and looking at his hands. And then he said, now, who's this man you mentioned? I said, the Apostle Paul. thought for a minute, he said, is that St. Paul? See, yeah, I guess so. He said, well, what's he the saint of? And I said, well, I, I don't know that he's a particular saint of anything. But he taught us about grace. He said, now, now, tell me again what grace is. I said, it's the unearned favor of God. And I said, you didn't earn the heartbeat or your next breath, or your hands, or your eyes, did you? Everything about you is a gift, is it not? Where you were born on the planet, in these United States, instead of another continent or country, what do you have to do with that? Nothing. So, grace is God's unearned favor. He's favored you in all kinds of ways that you don't deserve. He said, okay, is that why we ask grace at the meal? He said, and I said, well, sort of. And I realized this man is struggling with the notion that God favors him apart from his behavior. That he has been blessed in ways he did not earn. He really struggles with that. And I talked to him about the sin of ingratitude. How if we are self-righteous and self-made men and women and we are standing in our own behavior and performance and this is what we want to bring to God, how it can end up producing in us an ungrateful heart, an ungrateful spirit because we have earn some things but not near as much as others. And in comparison, we may look at ourselves and see ourselves deficient. Your greatest joy is knowing the God who is good to you despite the fact that you are a sinner. Your greatest peace is coming to God knowing He favors you even though you have failed him so often.
even as a believer, your greatest hope and confidence is coming before God knowing He has dealt with your sin, your personal failure, through His Son, Jesus Christ, on the cross. And so you can approach Him with confidence. What is your approach in life, by the way? What's your approach? There's nothing more fundamental than how we approach God. That would be the way we approach the fundamental power and authority in the universe is how we approach God. John is saying, I want you to have confidence in approaching God. So what's your approach to life? How do you approach, in general, living on the planet? John would say, Believe in Jesus as God's Son and our Savior. Commit your life unto Him and you will have confidence as you walk the planet. Confidence in your dealings with others and confidence even as you approach the supreme authority in the universe, even as you pray. Faith, confidence in your approach. Don't be an idolater. Don't trust the almighty dollar. Is that your approach? Don't do it. It's idolatry. It will fail you. Is there anything you can name other than God himself who is worthy of your absolute and unquestioned allegiance. Is there anything in this life upon which you can stand that will not shudder and shake beneath you and eventually fall away except the God who calls you to trust Him? Yes, in the middle of your circumstance, sister. Yes, in your trouble now, brother, to trust him, to believe that he knows your name, that he cares about you, that he is personally involved in your life, and to open your eyes to all the ways that the kingdom is unveiled before you. Keep yourselves from idols. Trust only in the God who sent his son to save you. And what about your affections? He deals with that in this next little paragraph. If anyone sees his brother commit a sin that does not lead to death, he should pray. Now, John has been dealing with our love for one another throughout the chapter. And though he does not mention love here, he has dealt before with how we are to see our brother. He's talked before about seeing a brother who is in need. And if we do not give of what we have to help him, how can the love of God be in us? He has already said, how can we love God whom we've not seen if we don't love our brother whom we have seen? He has challenged us to see one another. 
and see one another in love. So the call here is to compassion in the community of believers, in your life with one another, a perpetual forgiveness for the people around you who never measure up perfectly but are prone to fall and fail, including your spouse. You would agree, right? Or your children. And so if you see someone whom you are bond, uh, bound together in a bond of faith and love, if you see them commit a sin, what are you to do? You are to pray. We ought to pray for one another. If we see somebody stumble, if a spiritual failure develops in them, if they have become arrogant or greedy or slothful or angry or bitter, we ought to pray for that brother And the scripture says here that if you pray for the brother you see that you love, God will give him life. Your prayers are powerful for one another. We ought not to gossip about the people who falter and stumble in the body, in the Bible study class, in the small group, in our circle of fellowship. We ought instead to pray for them. And God will give them life. Now he says here, there is a sin that leads to death. Okay? Brothers and sisters, I don't think that is murder or adultery or dishonesty. Although this passage has led to the development of the idea of mortal sins that some have listed, and then there are the venial sins. And I think the division has not really been that helpful with our life and our walk in the world because I think sometimes if we're committing a venial sin, we don't worry about it too much when we ought to be letting the Holy Spirit purge out every bit of gossip and indecency in our lives, every little thing, every little strand of ungodliness. He says in here, all unrighteousness is sin. All wrongdoing is sin, and we don't want to have any of it in us. And we ought to to pursue a lifestyle of holiness. And the scripture says here, and John has already said this before, the one who believes in him, who is in Christ, does not continue to habitually sin. So you're in a new lifestyle as a believer. That doesn't mean that you're perfect. John's also said, if anyone says he has no sin, he deceives himself and the truth is not in him. And that's even a present tense kind of thing. I did meet a man once who told me he had not sinned in seven years. Hey, that's pretty good, don't you think? (laughs) Seven years. Anybody beat that? (laughs) 
I think that's silly. I just think that's silly. All wrongdoing, all ungodliness, all unrighteousness is sin. Brother, you got sins you don't even know about yet. Why? Because you don't know God perfectly. That's why. If you knew God more fully and perfectly, you would understand how out of sync your life is with His. How out of step you are in so many ways you have yet to know and discern. The idea that somebody who knows the perfect, holy, righteous, loving, kind, and gracious God would say he hadn't sinned in seven years? Maybe he doesn't know himself too well. John says, if we say, present tense, we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And that's just self-deception. So I don't want you to leave, go out these doors thinking, well, if I'm a believer in Jesus, I'll never sin. No, you are going to fall and falter and fail. Somebody asked me, one of the children said, uh, have you done more sinning since you got saved than before you got saved? Well, I was saved when I was a boy. Yes, I've done most of my sinning as a believer. All right? And there's been a lot of it, a lot of ways in which I am not like God. But what God is doing is he's pulling our affection toward himself. Love him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. When you come into the house of worship, love him passionately and fully and surrender everything that you are to him. Don't hold anything back. Keep yourselves from idols. Keep yourselves from idols. Don't let something become a greater love than the love you have for God. That, in the end, will be self-destructive. In the end, it will breathe death to you. You think that thing is good to which you are giving your life completely and without reservation, but in the end, it will fail you. My father, when I was a boy, had this long conversation with a man who came to our door And they stood on the sidewalk and they leaned against the cars. And as a 12-year-old boy, I sort of listened in to what my father was saying. And they were arguing religion. And this man was telling him about a system that he had whereby you could achieve righteousness and do these things and follow these rules and the letter of the law and you would be part of the chosen. And my father concluded the conversation with a word I've not forgotten all these years. He said, Sir... When your religion lets you down, you come back here and I'll tell you about Jesus because he'll never let you down. Is that right? That's right. Amen. That's why we're Jesus people at First Baptist New Orleans. We're not buying into a system. All right? We're not putting everybody into a structure. We're saying, you come to Jesus, you love him, you trust him, and yes, you obey him, and he will never fail you. And obedience is the third strand. Keep yourself from idols. Do not trust anything more than you trust God himself. Do not love anything like you love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And obey the confinements, the disciplines in your walk. He says, keep yourselves from idols. 
I thought God kept us. The Lord bless thee and what? Keep thee. I thought God kept us. Isn't God the one who keeps us? Didn't Jesus say, I have them in my hand and they shall never perish? Neither shall anyone pluck them out of my hand. My Father is greater than all, and no one can take them out of his hand. I and the Father are one. Isn't it Jesus who taught us that we are in his hand, and his hand is in God's hand, and nobody can get to us because we are his? That's what Jesus taught us. So God does the keeping. God does the keeping. That's why we believe that once we are his... We are his forever. He who hath the Son, John says in here, hath life. It's as simple as that. You have eternal life if you have the Son in you. And part of your confidence is knowing, knowing, knowing that you are saved, that you're his child, that you belong to him. John, in fact, has this tremendous emphasis in the letter. You are to know that you have eternal life. Maybe you can't know a lot of things, but you can know this. Do you know that Jesus is your Savior and Lord? Then you know you have eternal life. These things are written, he says, that you might know that you have eternal life. That it belongs to you. And there needs to be a confidence there. John says here, we need to live our lives in obedience to the God who has called us. Obedience is part of our confidence. This is how we know that we know him, he says, if we keep his commandments. Here at the end of the letter, he comes back to this theme of obedience. He talks about how the world is in darkness until now. The whole world is under the authority and control of the evil one. In fact, a literal translation, it lies under the control of the evil one. One of the things that's going on in your mind spiritually that's almost perpetual, particularly if you get into hard times, if somebody you love dies, if you have financial distress or your marriage fails or your kids wander off into, into things that are destructive, one of the things you think about is, if God is in control, why are things such a mess? If God is sovereign, if he's all-powerful, Why is the world in the shape it's in? And why is my life in the shape it's in? And it's a good and honest question. And part of the answer is what John says here. Yes, God is sovereign. But this world, he says, lies under the control of the evil one. When I'm lying, I may be snoring. I may be out of it. And the idea that the world is just lying there, 
That it's not fighting. That that's all it knows is the dog-eat-dog hatred, bitterness, get your own before somebody gets you kind of living. That's all they know. They don't know anything else. And so they lie there under the control of the evil one. They have yet to discover the God who is good, who gives them grace. They do not know that they are the object of God's passionate love for them. They haven't found out or discovered that. And there they lie under the control of the evil one. Some of them have actively committed the unpardonable sin. John says there is a sin that leads to death. It is the same thing that Jesus mentioned when he says anything will be forgiven you except when you blaspheme against the Holy Spirit. The idea of the unforgivable sin is this. It is attributing the work of God to the devil. Refusing to see God at work in your life, in the life of another. When Jesus did the miracles, they said he does it by the power of the devil. He can throw out those demons because the prince of demons is inside of him. And they attributed the works of God to the devil. A person who blasphemes against the Spirit is someone who is committed to their unbelief. And the sin is unforgivable, not because God refuses to forgive it, but because the individual will never come for forgiveness. Any tugging on his heart, any conviction of the Holy Spirit, he writes off as something other than the work of God. Any pang of conscience, any desire toward gratitude, as he looks at the world, any awe or wonder that he feels, it's always attributed to something else other than the call and drawing of God. Always he blasphemes against the Holy Spirit and he attributes the work of God to something else. So he will never come for forgiveness. But if you today were to feel the draw of God and the call of God and you were to respond to that call, we would know you have not committed this sin. For you are responding to God, calling for his forgiveness. You are repenting of your sin. And that activity of the Holy Spirit in you is evidence that you indeed are able to come before God and He will save you. Do not think. I've met some people who thought they'd committed the unpardonable sin. They came to church and they wailed and moaned and they thought, I can never get back there. And what has happened is some terrible things have happened in their life. Maybe they themselves have committed some awful things and they thought they cannot be forgiven. Brothers and sisters, God can forgive any sin that you are willing to confess and forsake. If you're willing to come confessing, if we confess our sin, John says in his letter, he is faithful and just and will, what? Forgive us our sin. I had a murderer ask me one time, can God forgive the sin of murder? I said, absolutely. Or King David, the sweet psalmist of Israel, would not be in heaven. Is that not true? He committed murder, didn't he? God can forgive murder. I had the opportunity one time to baptize a murderer. She owned up to it. She said she did it. 
We baptized her in a little tub in the prison. She followed Jesus so passionately. People turned their lives over to Christ, even watching her in the, in the pipe chase on death row. Her life was such a testimony, they printed up her story and sent it around the world. Her name was Carla Faye Tucker. And she was executed in 1998. And she went to be with Jesus. When the assistant DA in Houston saw her walk into the courtroom, he said of her, I looked at her eyes and I thought, she could kill me right now. She was so hard, so dead inside, she could have killed anybody in that courtroom. But God changed her life. You say, oh, that's jailhouse religion. Yeah, in a way it is. For about 15 years, with people watching you 24-7, every hour of every day of your life for 15 years, and the people most impressed with her faith and the transformation of her life were people like Dean Smith, a lady in my church, who every night was on the pipe chase in death row watching them. The last time I visited with Carla Faye Tucker, they wanted to sing a song for me. Betty Beats, who was also executed. Francis, who was also executed. Carla Tucker, and one other lady on death row, sang for me in sign language because Betty had gone deaf and Carla learned sign language and taught it to all the death row inmates so they could talk with Betty and sing with her. God wants your life. The idols you have given your life to are killing you. In the end, they will be your death. God wants your life. There is no life apart from Him. No matter what you've done or where you've been or how bad you've messed up, God wants your life. Jesus died on the cross for you. Your sin was paid for at Calvary. What remains is for you to confess, forsake, and come to the God who loves you and give that raggedy life of yours to the spotless Lamb of God who gave His perfect life for you. And in this incredible, unbelievable exchange, a life for a life, you get the life that never ends. Life here and forever. He who has the Son has life. Bow with me, please. Do you have the Son? Do you know Christ as Savior? Do you know that you have eternal life? If not, 
would you right where you are say Lord Jesus I know I'm a sinner I believe you died for me on the cross I believe you rose the third day forgive me for my sin come into my life I give you my life from this day forward thank you God for the wonderful love you have expressed through Jesus as he gave his life for us so today help us to trust help us to love help us to obey and so keep ourselves from idols and surrender to the one who loves us in his name we pray amen